Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, Isn't that so? You tried to get into the lock. Green Holly by Elizabeth Bowen. Mr. Rankstock entered the room with a dragging tread. Nobody looked up or took any notice. With a muted groan, he dropped into an armchair, out of which he shot with a sharp yelp. He searched the seat of the chair and extracted something. "'Your holly, I think, Miss Bates,' he said, holding it out to her. Miss Bates took it a second or two to look up from her magazine. "'What?' she said. "'Oh, it must have fallen down from that picture.' Put it back, please. We haven't got very much. I regret, interposed Mr. Winterslow, that we haven't had any. It makes scratchy noises against the walls. It's seasonable, said Miss Bates firmly. You didn't do this to us last Christmas. Last Christmas, she said, I had Christmas leave. This year, there seems to be none with berries. The birds have eaten them. If there were not a draught, the leaves wouldn't scratch the walls. I can't control the forces of nature, can I? How should I know, said Mr. Rankstock, lighting his pipe. These three by now felt that, like Chevalier and his old Dutch, they'd been together for forty years, and to them it did seem a year too much. Actually, their confinement dated from 1940. They were experts in what the censor would not permit me to say. They were accounted for by their friends in London as being somewhere off in the country. Nobody knows where doing something frightfully hush-hush. Nobody knows what. That is, they were accounted for in this manner if there were still anybody who still cared to ask. But on the whole, they had dropped out of human memory. Their reappearances in their former circles were infrequent, ghostly, and unsuccessful. Their friends could hardly disguise their pity, and for their own part they had not a word to say. They had come to prefer to spend leaves with their families, who at least showed a flattering pleasure in their importance. This Christmas, it so worked out that there was no question of leave for Mr. Rankstock, Mr. Winterslow or Miss Bates, with four others now playing or watching ping-pong in the next room. They composed in their high-grade way a skeleton staff. It may be wondered why, after years of proximity, they should continue to address one another so formally. They did not continue. They had begun again in the matter of appellations, as in that of intimacy. They had by now, in fact, by some time ago, completed the full circle. For some months they could not recall in which year Miss Bates had been engaged to Mr. Winterslow. Before that, she had been extremely friendly with Mr. Rankstock. Mr. Rankstock's deviation towards one Carla, now at her ping-pong in the next room, had been totally uninteresting to everybody, including, apparently, himself. If the war lasted, Carla might next year be called Miss Tongue. At present, Miss Bates was foremost in keeping her in her place by going on addressing her by her Christian name. If this felt like their fortieth Christmas in each other's society... It was their first in these particular quarters. You would not have thought, as Mr. Rankstock said, that one country house could be much worse than another, but this had proved, and was still proving, untrue. The army, for reasons it failed to justify, wanted the house they had been in since 1940, so they, lock, stock and barrel, and files and all, had been bundled into another one six miles away. Since the move, 
tentative exploration, for they were none of them walkers, had established that they were now surrounded by rather more mud but fewer trees. What they did know was that their already sufficient distance from the market town, with its bars and movies, had now been added to by six miles. On the other side of their new home, which was called Moxham Grange, there appeared to be nothing, unless, as Miss Bates suggested, swineherds keeping their swine. Mopsum Village contained villagers, evacuees, a church, a public house, on whose never-open door was chalked, no beer, no matches, no tea served, and a vicar. The vicar had sent up a nice note, saying he was not clear whether security regulations would allow him to call, and the doctor had been up once to lance one of Carla's boils. Mopsum Grange was neither old nor new. It replaced, unnecessarily, they all felt, a house on this site that had been burned down. It had a gothic porch and gables, French windows, bow windows, a conservatory, a veranda, a hall which puce and buff-tiled and pitch-pine panelled rose to a gallery. In fact, every advantage. Jackdaws fidgeted in its many chimneys, for it had, till the war, stood empty. One had not to ask why. The hot water system made what Carla called rude noises, was capricious in its supplies to the only two mahogany-rimmed baths. The electric light ran from a plant in the yard. If the batteries were not kept charged, the light turned brown. The three now sat in the drawing-room, on whose walls mirrors and fitments long since removed left traces. There were, however, some pictures. General Montgomery, who had just shed his holly, and some lancer engravings that had been found in an attic. Three bulbs, naked, shed light manfully, and in the grate the coal fire was doing far from badly. Miss Bates rose and stood twiddling the bit of holly. Something, she said, has got to be done about this. Mr. Winterslow and Miss Rankstock, the latter sucking his pipe, sank lower between their shoulder blades in their respective armchairs. Miss Bates, having drawn a breath, took a running jump at a table, which she propelled across the room with a grating sound. Achtung! she shouted at Mr. Rankstock, who, with an oath, withdrew his chair from her route. Having got the table under General Montgomery, Miss Bates, with a display of long, slender leg, clad in ribbed scarlet sports stockings, that was of interest to no one, mounted it, then proceeded to tuck the holly back into position over the General's frame. Meanwhile, Mr. Winterslow, choosing his moment, stealthily reached across her empty chair and possessed himself of her magazine. What a hope! Miss Bates was known to have eyes all the way down her spine. Damn you, Mr. Winterslow, she said. Put that down! Mr. Rankstock, interfere with Mr. Winterslow. Mr. Winterslow has taken my magazine! She ran up and down the table like something in a cage. Mr. Rankstock removed his pipe from his mouth, dropped his head back, gazed up and said, "'Gad, Miss Bates, you look fine.' "'It's a pretty old magazine,' murmured Mr. Winterslow, flicking the pages over. "'Well, you're pretty old,' she said. "'I hope Carla gets you.' "'Oh, I can do better, thank you. I've got a ghost.' This confidence was cut off by Mr. Rankstock's having burst into song, holding his pipe at arm's length, rocking on his bottom in his armchair, he led them. 
Hey ho, sing hey ho unto the green holly. Most friendship is feigning, most loving mere folly. Mere folly, mere folly, contributed Mr. Winterlow, picking up, joining in. Both sang. Then hey ho, the holly, this life is most jolly. Now all said Mr. Rankstock, jerking his pipe at Miss Bates. So all three went through it once more, with degrees of passion. Miss Bates, when others desisted, being left singing, Hey-ho, sing, hey-ho, sing, all by herself. Next door, the ping-pong came to an awestruck stop. At any rate, said Mr. Rankstock, we all like Shakespeare. Miss Bates, whose intelligence like her singing tonight seemed some way off at the tail of the hunt, looked blank, began to get off the table and said, But I thought that was a Christmas carol. The companions shrugged and glanced at each other. Having taken her magazine away from Mr. Winterslow, she was once more settling down to it when she seemed struck. What was that you said about you had got a ghost? Mr. Winterslow looked down his nose. At this early stage, I don't like to say very much. In fact, on the whole, forget it, if you don't mind. Look, Mr. Rankstock said, if you've started seeing things. I'm only sorry, his colleague said, that I've spoke. Oh, no, you're not, said Miss Bates. And we better know just what is fishy about this grange. There's nothing fishy, said Mr. Winterslow in a fastidious tone. It was hard indeed to tell from his manner whether he did or did not regret having made a start. He had reddened, but not perhaps wholly painfully. His eyes, now fixed on the fire, were at once bright and vacant. With unheeding, fumbling movements, he got out a cigarette, lit it, and dropped a match on the floor to slowly burn one more hole in the fibre mat. Gripping the cigarette between tense lips, he first flung his arms out, as though casting off a cloak, then pressed both hands clasped firmly to the nerve centre in the nape of his neck, as though to contain the sensation there. She was marvellous, he brought out, what I could see of her. Don't talk with a cigarette in your mouth, Miss Bates said. Young, adorably, not so very. At the same time quite... Oh, well, you know what I mean. Uh-huh said Miss Bates, and wearing? I am certain she had a feather boa. You mean, Mr. Rankstock said, that this brushed your face. And when and where did this happen, said Miss Bates, with legal coldness. Cross-examination clearly became more and more repugnant to Mr. Winterslow in his present mood. He shut his eyes, sighed bitterly, heaved himself from his chair and said, Oh, well and stood indecisively looking towards the door. "'Don't let us keep you,' said Miss Bates. "'But one thing I don't see is, if you're being fed with the beautiful thoughts, why you wanted to keep on taking my magazine. I wanted to be distracted. Huh? There are moments when I don't quite know where I am.' "'You surprise me,' said Mr. Rankstock. "'Good God, man! What is the matter?' For Mr. Winterslow, like a man being swooped around by a bat, was revolving 
staring from place to place, high up round the walls of the gauntlet room. Miss Bates observed, Well, now we have started something. Mr. Rankstock, considerably kinder, said, That is only Miss Bates' holly flittering in the wind. Mr. Winterslow gulped. He walked to the inch of the mirror propped on the mantelpiece, and, as nonchalantly as possible, straightened his tie. Having done this, he said, But there isn't a wind tonight. The ghost hesitated in the familiar corridor. Her visibleness, even on Christmas Eve, was not under her own control. And now she had fallen in love again. Her dependence upon it began to dissolve in patches. This was a concentration of every feeling of the woman prepared to sail downstairs, en grand tenue. Flamboyance and agitation were both present. But between these... Because of her years of death, there cut an extreme anxiety. It was not merely a matter of how was she, but of was she tonight at all. Death had left her to be her own mirror, for into no other was she able to see. For tonight she had discarded the feather boa, it had been dropped into the limbo that was her wardrobe now. Her shoulders she knew were bare. Round their bareness shimmered a thousand evenings. Her own person haunted her. Above her forehead the crisp, springy weight of her pompadour. Round her feet the frou-frou of her skirts on a thick carpet. In her nostrils the scent from her corsage. Up and down her forearm the glittery slipping of bracelets warmed by her own blood. It is the haunted who haunt. There were lights in the house again. She heard laughter, and then there had been singing. From those few dim lights and untrue notes, her senses, after their starvation, set going the whole grand opera again. She smiled and moved down the corridor to the gallery, where she stood looking down into the hall. The tiles of the hall floor were as pretty as ever, as cold as ever, and bore, as always on Christmas Eve, the trickling pattern of dark blood. The figure of the man with the side of his head blown out lay there, as always, one foot just touching the lowest step of the stairs. It was too bad. She had been silly, but it couldn't be helped. They shouldn't have shut her up in the country. How could she not make hay while the sun shone? The year round, no man except her husband, his uninteresting jealousy, his dull passion... Then at Christmas, so many men that one didn't know where to turn. The ghost, leaning further over the gallery, pouted down at the suicide. She said, you should have let me explain. The man made no answer. He never had. Behind a door somewhere downstairs, a racket was going on. The house sounded funny. There were no carpets. The morning-room door was flung open and four flushed people headed by a young woman charged out. They clattered across the man in a trickling pattern as though there were nothing there but the tiles. In the morning-room, she saw one small white ball trembling to stillness upon the floor. As the people rushed the stairs and fought for place in the gallery, the ghost drew back. A purest act of repugnance, for this was not necessary. The young woman, to one of whose temples was strapped a cotton-wool pad, held her place and disappeared round a corner, exulting, 
My bath, my bath. Then may you freeze in it, Carla returned, the scrawniest of the defeated ones. The words pierced the ghost who trembled. They did not know. Who were they? She didn't ask. She didn't care. She never had been inquisitive. Information had bored her. Her schooled lips had framed one set of questions, her eyes a consuming other. Now the mills of death with their catching wheels had stripped her of semblance, cast her forth on an everlasting holiday from pretense. She was left with, nay, had to become, her obsession. Thus it is to be a ghost. The ghost fixed her eyes on the other, the drawing-room door. He had gone in there. He would have to come out again. The handle turned, the door opened. Winterslow came out. He shut the door behind him with the sedulous slowness of an uncertain man. He'd been humming, and now, squaring his shoulders, began to sing, Mere folly, mere folly. As he crossed the hall towards the foot of the staircase, obstinately never raising his eyes, So it is you, breathed the ghost with unheard softness. She gathered about her, with a gesture not less proud for being tormentedly uncertain, the total of her visibility. Was it possible diamonds should not glitter now on her rising and falling breast, and swept from the gallery to the head of the stairs? Winterslow shivered violently and looked up. He licked his lips. He said, This cannot go on. The ghost's eyes, with tender impartiality and mockery, from above swept Winterslow's face, the hair receding, the furrowed forehead, the tired sag of the jowl, the strain reddened eyelids, the blue shaved chin. Nothing was lost on her. Nothing broke the spell. With untroubled wonder she saw his hand-woven tie, his coat pockets shapeless as saddlebags, the bulging knees of his flannel trousers. Wonder went up in rhapsody, so much chaff in the fire. She never had had illusions. The illusion was all. Lovers cannot be choosers. He'd do. He would have to do. I know, she agreed with rapture, casting her hands together. We're mad, you and I. What's going to happen? I entreat you to leave this house tonight. Winterslow, in a dank, unresounding voice, said, "'And anyhow, what made you pick me?' "'It's kismet,' wailed the ghost zestfully. "'Why did you have to come here? Why you?' "'I have been so peaceful, just like a little girl. People spoke of love, but I never knew what they meant. "'Oh, I wish we had never met you and I.' Winterslow said, "'I've been here for three months. We have all of us been here, as a matter of fact.' Why all of this all of a sudden? She said, there's a Christmas Eve party, isn't there, going on? One Christmas Eve party, there was a terrible accident. Oh, comfort me. No one has understood. Don't stand there. I can't bear it, just not there. Winterslow, whether he heard or not, cast a scared glance down at his feet, which were in slippers, then shifted a pace or two to the left. Let me up, he said wildly. I tell you, I want my spectacles. I just want to get my spectacles. Let me buy. Let you up. 
the ghost marveled. But I'm only waiting. She was more than waiting. She set up a sort of suction, an icy indrawing draught. Nor was this wholly psychic, for an isolated holly leaf of Miss Bates's dropped at the turn of the staircase, twitched. And not, you could think, by chance did the electric light choose this moment for one of its brown fade-outs. Gradually the scene, the hall, the stairs, and the gallery faded under this fog-dark but glass-clear veil of hallucination. The feet of Winterslow, under remote control, began with knocking unsureness to mount the stairs. At their turn he staggered, steadied himself, and then stamped derisively upon the holly-leaf. Bah! he neighed. Spectacles! By the ghost now putting out everything, not a word would be dared. Where are you? Weakly her dress rustled three steps down. The rings on her hand knocked weakly over the panelling. Here! Oh, here! she sobbed. Where I was before! Hell, said Miss Bates, who had opened the drawing-room door and was looking resentfully round the hall. This electric light! Mr. Rankstock from inside the drawing-room said, Find the man. The man has gone to the village, Mr. Rankstock. If you were half a man, Mr. Winterslow, what are you doing kneeling down on the stairs? Have you come over funny? Really, this is the end. At the other side of a bay's door, one of the installations began ringing. Mr. Rankstock, Miss Bates yelled implacably, yours this time. Mr. Rankstock, with an expression of hatred, whipped out a pencil and pad and shambled across the hall. Under cover of this, Mr. Winterslow pushed himself upright, brushed his knees and began to descend the stairs to confront his colleague's narrow but not unkind look. Weeks of exile from any hairdresser had driven Miss Bates to the Alice in Wonderland style. A snood, tied at the top, was now thrust back, adding inches to her pale, polished brow. Nicotine stained the fingers she closed upon Mr. Winterslow's elbow, propelling him back to the drawing-room. "'There's always drink,' she said. "'Come along.' He said hopelessly, "'If you mean the bottle between the filing cabinets, I finished that when I had to work last night. "'Look here, Miss Bates. Why should she have picked on me?' "'It has been broken off, then.' said Miss Bates. I'm sorry for you, but I don't like your tone. I resent your attitude to my sex. For that matter, why did you pick on her? Romantic, nostalgic, blue Danube fixated, huh? There's Carla, an understanding girl, unselfish, getting over her boils. There are Avis and Lettuce, due back on Boxing Day. There's me, as you have ceased to observe. But, oh dear, no, we do not trail feather boas. She only wore that in the afternoon. Now let me tell you something, said Miss Bates. When I opened the door just now to have a look at the lights, what do you think I first saw there in the hall? Uh, uh, me, replied Mr. Winterslow with returning assurance. Oh, no. Oh, indeed, no, said Miss Bates. You? Why should I think twice of that if you were striking attitudes on the stairs? You? No. I saw your enchanting inverse, extended as it is true stone dead. 
I saw the man of my dreams. From his attitude it was clear he had died for love. There were three pearl studs in his boiled shirt, and his white tie must have been tied in heaven. And the hand that dropped the pistol had dropped a white rose. It lay beside him, brown and crushed from having been often kissed. The ideality of those kisses, for the last of which I arrived too late. Here Miss Bates beat her fist against the bow of her snood. Will haunt and by haunting satisfy me? The destruction of his features before I saw them made their former perfection certain where I am concerned, and here I am, left, 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 to watch dust gather on Mr. Rankstock and you, to watch, yes, I who saw in a flash the ink-black perfection of his tailoring, mildew form on those clothes that you never change, to remember how both of you had in common that way of blowing your noses before you kissed me. He had been deceived, hence the shot, hence the fall. But who was she, your feathered friend, to deceive him? Who could have deceived him more superbly than I? I could be fatal, moaned Miss Bates, pacing the drawing-room. I could be fatal. Only give me a break. Well, I'm sorry, said Mr. Winterslow, but really, what can I do? Or poor Rangstock do. We're just ourselves. You put the thing in a nutshell, said Miss Bates. Perhaps I could bear it if you just got your hairs cut. If it comes to that, Miss Bates, you might get your set. Mr. Rankstock's re-entry into the drawing-room, this time with brisker step for a nice little lot of new trouble was brewing up, synchronised with the fall of the piece of holly again, from the general's frame to the Rankstock chair. This time he saw it in time. Your holly, I think, Miss Bates, he said, holding it out to her. We must put it back, said Miss Bates. We haven't got very much. I cannot see, said Mr. Winterslow, why we should have any. I don't see the point of holly without berries. Uh, the birds have eaten them, said Miss Bates. I cannot control the forces of nature, can I? Then hey-ho, sing hey-ho, Mr. Rankstock led off. Yes, she said. Let us have that pretty carol again. That was Green Holly by Elizabeth Bowen, first published in The Listener, 21st December 1944, so it was always intended as a Christmas story and clearly a wartime story as well. One presumes that they are something to do with the codebreakers at Bletchley or such like, engaged in hush-hush jobs during the war to tr break the Germans' codes, which they did very successfully. Um, so I'm going to read something about um, Elizabeth Dorothea Cole Bowen was born in Dublin but lived for most of her life in England. Her most famous novels include The Death of a Heart, 1938, and The Heat of the Day, 1949, both of which explore the theme of loneliness, the former between the wars and the latter against the backdrop of the London Blitz. She did not use supernatural tropes in her novels but was an enthusiastic writer of short ghost stories, seeing them as a perfect way of manifesting problems and uncertainties of the modern world. She explains in her introduction to Cynthia Asquith's anthology, The Second Ghost Book, 1952, Ghosts have grown up. Far behind lie their clanking and moaning days. They have laid aside their original bag of tricks, bleeding hands, luminous skulls, 
Loomis skulls are good. I need to put that in a story. And so on. Their manifestations are like their personalities, oblique and subtle, perfectly calculated to get the modern person under their skin. They abjure the over-fantastic and grotesque, operating instead through a series of happenings whose horror lies in their being. Just, just out of the true, ghosts draw us together. One might leave it at that, says Elizabeth Bowen in this piece. Can there be something tonic about pure, active fear in these times of passive, confused oppression? It is nice to choose to be frightened when one need not be. Or it may be that, deadened by information, we are glad of these awful, intent and nameless beings, as to whom no information is to be had. Bowen was born in 1899 in Dublin, daughter of a barrister, Henry Charles Cole Bowen. And their family were Irish gentry, but they date their origin back to Wales in the 1500s, hence the name Bowen, you know, our Bowen. If you see a picture, she looks very Celtic with that triangular face and the dark hair. When she was in London as a writer, she mixed with the Bloomsbury group and was visited by people like uh, Virginia Woolf and Rose Macaulay. In 1923, she married Alan Cameron, an educational administrator who subsequently worked for the BBC. I should say she went to art school in London. Their marriage, as it says on the wiki, has been described as a sexless but contented union. The marriage was reportedly never consummated. Who knows what goes on behind people's doors, and it is not our place to ask. She had various extramarital affairs, including one with Charles Ritchie, a Canadian diplomat, seven years a junior, which lasted over 30 years. She had an affair with the Irish writer Sean O'Feelan, and a relationship with the American poet May Sarton. Bowen and her husband lived first near Oxford, where they socialised with Maurice Bora. He wrote great books about the Greeks, and things like he was a great classicist, wasn't he? John Buchan, of course, great writer, who and his wife Susan, and uh, you know, Thirty Nine Steps, etc. I've done a couple of John Buchan stories. I quite like him. And she wrote her early novels in Oxford, and then um, she inherited the Bowen's Court. Um, I don't even know what that means, but she visited Ireland a lot. She was clearly attracted to Ireland. Bowen's Court is a big house in Ireland, built in the 1770s by Henry Cole Bowen, her family. He died in 1788. The Bowen family were minor Irish gentry of Welsh origin uh, and they were resident in County Cork. Since Henry Bowen, a notoriously irreligious colonel in the army of the regicide Cromwell, settled in Ireland, one wonders how popular he would have been, but they seem to have settled in. Um, So she inherited it and then um, she had a nervous breakdown in the 1950s and went back to Oxford, and then it was uh, bought by somebody else and knocked down in 1959. That's a shame, isn't it? When you read the names of the people she was associated with in the mid-20th century, Virginia Woolf, Eudora Welty, Carson McCullers, Iris Murdoch, she was painted by Patrick Hennessy, who was a friend of hers. So, you know, she was well, well connected with the, um, the glitterati, shall we say. I like that word. I came across it in the week. Glitterati. I like that. Her ghost stories were praised by Robert Aikman, who considered Elizabeth Bowen to be the most distinguished living practitioner of ghost stories. I wonder if he included himself in that. But, you know, and you know uh, Cynthia Asquith, uh, lady, we've done a story of Cynthia Asquith's, The Corner Shop, and she issued and edited a series of um, the Fontana ghost story books 
and Elizabeth Bowen did one of the um, introductions to that and wrote the introduction. One of the things she does really well is, um, if you ever hear me talk about Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde was the king of aphorisms. So an aphorism is where you say something is true. And for some reason, humans, we tend to accept it. If somebody says something in a pithy enough way, so she says aphorisms like, it is the haunted who haunt. And you think of people like Jane Austen and... um, Oscar, as we said, they, they issue these statements and you go, it is the haunted. Oh, yeah, that sounds really deep. What does that actually mean? It doesn't really mean anything. But we, well, it means something, but not actually, it's not as profound as you think it is. Because, you know, I might say something like, it is the hungriest dog who howls loudest. And you go, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, so what? It doesn't mean anything, but um, it sounds profound. So she says these things, but I'm not knocking it. I, I think this, in terms of a ghost story, is so special. Um, I'm going to digress to say, in a, a while ago, you may know I'm doing a um, serialisation of my novel, Unreal City, and I, I got really into the 1920s when I was writing that novel, and I became obsessed, and I must say, fell in love with Louise Brooks, who was in the 1920s. And I, I read all her autobiographies, and I just, oh. Now, funnily enough, Louise Brooks and I spent some time on Earth together, but not very much because was, she was an old lady and I was a little boy. But she was so, I mean, she was a bit of a naughty girl in lots of ways. But, you know, Elizabeth Bowen, she writes like this. And I'm like, oh, I just love you, Elizabeth. I would love I would love to just meet you and talk about how you've done this because I don't it's if you look at the form of it okay there is some formal structures so she the holly falls at the beginning and falls at the end and they have a chat at the beginning and then they they echo the chat but it is different because of what's happened because of what's happened in the middle we now hear the words that were spoken at the beginning again but they have a different tone you know about the fallen holly and we see at the beginning the fall of the holly onto the sea could be any story, could be anything, any Christmas story. But at the end of it, it is sort of symbolic about their sequestered life. That here they are stuck in this old house. They've been together. They've kind of had sort of relationships with each other and got bored of it. They're bored of each other. There's nothing special about them. They know each other. They are fairly undistinguished. She hasn't got her hair done. Miss Bates' hair is a mess, and the two blokes are a shambles, you know. They are not your, they're not your dream of romantic love. They're just ordinary, you know. And, yeah, indeed. And then we have these ghosts who are, you know, she, they're, it's an adulterous relationship which carries a certain frisson, and... Um, there's a, there's a suicide because of it. So this guy, this beautifully cut and distinguished guy with, I don't know, he's got pearl pearl pins, pearl buttons and a diamond pin, and he's blown his brains out for love of this girl, and she's got lovely bangles that slip up and down her arms, and she's got a feather boa. So they are the, the kind of quintessence of romanticism, aren't they? And the point is, this is my take on it, and, you know, I, I totally accept you might have a different take on it. They are... Um, they're unreal, whereas our three mundane, banal, quotidien people are just ordinary and plain and rubbish, and you wouldn't fall in love with them, would you? But these two, 
the feather boa woman and the um and the suicide guy lying in a pool of, pool of blood on these tiles it's just so romantic isn't it 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 kind of um we think this is what life should be about it should be about romance and blowing your brains out for love and having beautiful feather boas and being so beautiful so beautiful and young and talented and gorgeous and lovely and in fact what we find is you know life is more about you know you can't find your glasses and uh your pockets are full of lint and uh you you, you know you want, you shuffle around in slippers um <laughs> perhaps if you're 20 you don't but um i don't know but i think even 20 year olds can be a bit of a mess i certainly was anyway so i think that's what that's about it's a, it's just a juxtaposition of the romantic possibility of a ghost which is that which is archetypal which is unreal and the everydayness of reality in which our romance and wonder has fallen out of the world. I think, um, I think she's very, I think just, just by stating that, sometimes I, if I go and look at a gallery or look at photographs, I'll, one of the things that impresses me is the, the isness of it. I remember saying that, it sounds very kind of highfalutin, but you just look at it and some, some photos, particularly photographs, but actually paintings, they just capture a scene, a, a particularly an ordinary scene, an ordinary everyday scene. You look at it and you go, that is kind of it. That is, that is, and it's not real. That's the, that's the joke. It's not real. A photograph is not reality. But in some way it is able to, I don't know if I'm talking rubbish now. Maybe I am. But it's, but it's, it, it's the isness of it. It's the isness of reality. That, that is what things are. And yet at the same time, we long for this romance. Anyway, I just think it's really well done. I'm not saying it's profound. It may, maybe is more profound than I think. But um, than I've actually realised, and, and that might be the case. But I just love it. I love her to the extent of I'm in love with her talent and her, her spirit. Don't tell Sheila. We'll keep this between ourselves, okay? Um, I, I mean, I don't obviously really love her because she's dead. And even if I'd known her, she wouldn't have talked to me because I am not... Uh, well, I keep going on about that. They say I'm very well balanced. I've got chips on both shoulders. But let's just move over from that. Anyway, what a great story, I thought. I'm, I'm churning out these Christmas stories. I've got plenty to do, though. I'm doing websites and things as well, so I'm a busy boy. I've cut down one day, so I'm only working two days in my mental health. But funnily enough, one of the websites is about mental health, so mm, that's it. Anyway, I hope you're all well. We started the Discord server for the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. It's got a, a select group of people who go to it. You may choose not to go to it, and that's fine. But uh, they asked me to um, set up a puppy channel, a puppy talk channel, because what it seemed to be is most people on that want to talk about their dogs and uh, post pictures of their dogs. I've done the same, to be fair. So I'm like, okay, we can have a puppy channel. We've got a book club tonight in about 40 minutes and I'm gonna we're gonna talk about they by Rudyard Kipling so that'll be fun I enjoy a chat with them uh, uh you know and and things mm. uh what else has been so we're getting close to Christmas I'm gonna be churning these stories out don't worry about that my friend uh Jonathan Sharp oh we're doing a few live ghost Christmas ghost stories so I've got two just two before Christmas one on the 17th and one on the 21st the 17th is um a more formal ghost story. So I'll do some of my bittersweet ghost stories. And then on the 21st, it's like a solstice thing. And I'm sharing the stage with some hauntological avant-garde musicians. <laughs> so I thought I was going to pick something that wasn't as bittersweet. 
you know, you know, as saccharin. I'm not knocking my own stories, but you know, one knows what they are. And uh, this is the um, Bucastle Fairies, which is humorous, I think, and slightly, um, yeah, unkind, possibly. Um, but it's you know, horses for courses. So I'm going to do those. And so anyway, back to the point. So Jonathan, who is Hartwood Institute, who does the music at the beginning and the end of this podcast, he um, he had uh, he's got some stuff on Spotify, and he pointed out that Spotify pay musicians just for each stream. It's something like point zero 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 of a penny. It's it's appallingly low, and and I said in righteous anger. Spotify and Audible and all these people, they go, you listen to our free podcasts, join. So yeah, I pay, I pay you to listen to free podcasts, that sounds great. And um, you put adverts on my podcast and you pay me sweet duck egg nothing. You pay me zero. And that's a cheek, isn't it, from a, a very rich company that are going to be making money off people's back. Uh, and uh, so uh, me and Jonathan, we'll, we'll sit there and simmer in righteous indignation because that's what you do when you get a bit older, I think. I'm a lot less narky than I was. I was going through a narky pa- uh, phase. I was like, narky, narky, narky. And now I'm kind of a bit more beatific. I like that word. Uh, I don't think I'm quite beatific, but um, I'm a bit more chilled. So I hope you are too, because I love Christmas. We're in the middle of Carlisle today and they've got a little Christmas market. And Carlisle Christmas market is very mini compared with places like, you know, um, Manchester. We're going to go up to Edinburgh. Um, I love Edinburgh. My dad's from Edinburgh. He's, he was. He's dead now. But um, um, I love Edinburgh and the Christmas market. And I was hoping, actually, to have a wander to the Botanical Gardens, which is a place I really like, even though there won't be much out. But the cafe might be open. And uh, have, a, have, a, have a wander there. So that's going to be the 10th of December and I'm getting more into the Christmas spirit. I hope you are too. One of the things, of course, is um, if you're in the USA, and, and you know there is actually a majority of people who listen to this podcast from the USA, you have Thanksgiving. We have nothing to be thankful for. That, of course, isn't true. It's just me being theatrical again. Sheila says to me, you're very theatrical. And, uh, you know, if things had gone differently. When I was uh, 17, I got a place at drama school in Glasgow, but I never ended up going. And... Things might have been different. I've been, I would have been retired by now. Um, so things would have been very different. But I have plenty to be thankful for. So, uh, yes, Christmas is coming. I love it, love it, love it. Uh, you all take care. I hope you enjoy it as much as me. I'll keep pumping out these stories. Keep in touch.
invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy 
of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.